Um, thank you all very much for, uh, if you can't hear me, do please uh, just, uh, just let me know. And certainly if you have any questions while I'm talking or rambling as the case may be, uh, I'll certainly uh, just uh, indicate that you have a question. And I'd be happy to take those uh, as we progress. Uh, the other thing that I should indicate is that when I got my new prescription for my glasses, I should have got progressive lenses. Um, so I will be actually lifting and putting my glasses down throughout just as I begin reading off of my uh, uh, notes here that are unfortunately on the computer because technology is so wonderful my printer decided to crash today so I wasn't able to print them out so I will be uh, I apologize uh, uh, reading off of uh, my computer but again as I said I will uh, I do have a little bit uh, uh, of the talk um, uh, written down and then after that I'll just be sort of talking uh, just uh, 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 ad hoc off the uh, off the cuff so um, this I've titled um, Mapping fantasy, fantasy literature, and the epic tradition. And so when I was asked to talk uh, today um, about mapping, I kind of took mapping more metaphorically as opposed to literally. And so I'm going to be uh, talking about the sort of metaphorical mapping of uh, a contemporary fantasy literature. But the central point that I'm going to be making uh, throughout today's talk, which should run about half an hour to 40 minutes uh, at most, um, is that fantasy literature often derided um, as something that's escapist, that's, uh, that's written for what might be called nerdy adolescence, um, it is actually rooted in the beginning of Western uh, literary tradition. It is rooted in the epic tradition. And so uh, this then is uh, mapping fantasy, fantasy literature, and the epic tradition. So today I will be discussing the roots of fantasy literature in part in an attempt to show that fantasy is not a genre to be disparaged, not simply escapist literature written for what might be called nerdy adolescence. To the contrary, fantasy is part of a long tradition that can trace its roots back to the dawn of Western civilization. At its heart, my talk argues that fantasy is a continuation of the epic tradition that begins for us on the printed page of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey, the great uh, ancient Greek epic poems. I will then discuss how contemporary fantasy, and when I talk about contemporary fantasy, I should clarify that I am talking about high fantasy, what might be considered to be literary fantasy, such as J.R. Tolkien um, and, and others of, of his ilk, including uh, the Inklings, uh, C.S. Lewis being uh, one among them. So I am talking about um, high fantasy, not what might be considered to be swords and sorcery or, or Dungeons and Dragons and, and that sort of thing. Not disparaging Dungeons and Dragons by any stretch, it's some, one of my favorite games. Um, so, so to continue on, um, uh, in other words, uh, through what, um, sorry, I'm going to have to lift up here, what is often considered to be escapism and brain candy, contemporary fantasists are able to comment obliquely on sensitive and controversial topics, but in the relative safety and comfort of a fabricated world. And if we think about uh, fantasy as part of uh, speculative fiction, uh, we might even begin to think of uh, Star Trek uh, in the 1960s, the original series, um, where we actually have a black woman as the third, I believe, in command of the Enterprise, which in 1960s America was an incredible um, uh, advance for racial relations and, and certainly a commentary on racial relations and racial tensions in America during that time. Uh, so finally, I will uh, address the importance of geography to fantasy literature, from the frequency with which maps appear at the front of fantasy books to the role geography and land play in the plot of many fantasy stories, from the mapping of the known world in Homer's Iliad to how sorcerers gain their magical powers from the land of, in Tigana 
a novel by Canadian fantasist Guy Gavriel Kay. And if you're not familiar with Guy Gavriel Kay's work, I certainly encourage you to read it. He's, he's a wonderful, wonderful just writer in general, let alone a, a, a fantasist. So over the next 40 minutes or so, probably a little bit less than 40 minutes, I will attempt to map fantasy literature. And to begin, we must begin before the written word, before literature itself, in the days of what might be called orature. So orature being uh, a recognition of literature that existed before the printed word, or oral literature. And we must imagine this, as there are no records, obviously. But we can imagine that people around a fire, after the day's hunting and gathering had been completed, began to tell stories of the day, stories of the season, and stories of their history. In other words, they began to map themselves onto the world with oral narratives, the stories themselves becoming a repository of knowledge and history. They were, in many ways, then beginning to tell themselves into existence. And so as I begin to talk today, there will be several topics that I will touch on uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the talk. Uh, and one of them that, that uh, comes up surprisingly is gender. Um, that gender does actually play an incredible role in, in this uh, uh, fantasy literature. And, and tied into that, obviously, is lineage and, and the significance of lineage throughout uh, both the epic tradition and fantasy literature itself. The significance of naming, the importance of language uh, that often we see in contemporary fantasy uh, uh, literature, that the power of the word um, is particularly significant, that magical uh, worlds are, are sung into existence, for instance, with J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Lord of the Rings, um, that uh, magical systems of power um, actually are rooted in language itself. And so the significance of language is significance of narrative. And as we will see when we get to um, the Iliad, the way in which that very narrative, the way in which that poem, the Iliad, works in some ways to preserve the immortality of Achilles himself. So that this, it's, it becomes in some ways a kind of self-reflexive or self-fulfilling prophecy here. Um, as well, we will be talking about objects, the role of objects, the significance of, of powerful uh, objects, uh, both again in the epic tradition and in fantasy literature itself. Um, and and uh, if anyone is a, a gamer of uh, video games, uh, fantasy video games, certainly we see the, the way in which um, dropped objects, when you de defeat a creature, uh, uh, creates a certain kind of power that we see. Um, that actually also having its roots in uh, fantasy literature and the epic tradition itself. So the beginning then of the epic tradition that I'm going to be talking about once again begins with uh, orature. It begins with uh, the, the oral storytelling as people uh, began to uh, narrate themselves, narrate themselves into existence, but also beginning to preserve their history. Okay? And we can see the, the, uh, this developing into um, the Iliad, the Odyssey, and, and the uh, epic, or what's also called the, uh, the heroic poems. Um, now, we have to think about Homer, who is attributed, uh, who, who um, the Iliad and the Odyssey are attributed to Homer, but Homer is not really a kind of author as we understand authors. That in, in many ways, uh, Homer is, is, is rec uh, recognized um, as uh, a figure who is really representing a long history of non-written literature. That, that Homer is really uh, a representative of an entire cultural history 
that he is just he is just sort of given a kind of uh, uh, attribution as the the uh, writer of this, but he's not really an author as we might imagine an author as a single individual uh, genius who is sitting up in his garret apartment writing frantically and coming down at the uh, the end of the evening saying, "Look at this wonderful story that I've created." That really Homer Homer does have this uh, this long cultural history behind him, and he is just uh, given this attribution. There's some debate, in fact, of whether Homer uh, as a person existed. Uh, and so on. But he is represented quite frequently um, as the blind poet, right? And that's an off, often a trope that we see that the people who are, uh, that, that are able to see, that are able to forecast the future, are also uh, often represented as uh, being uh, blind. Um, <clears throat> so these are the epic poems or the heroic poems. And M. H. Abrams, who is a, a, a wonderful taxonomist of literature, uh, his uh, 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 the definition of literary terms is, is one of the, the, the uh, fantastic uh, works in literary criticism. He says that the uh, epic or heroic poem is, and this is a direct quote, long verse, a long verse narrative on a serious subject, so it has to be a serious subject, it can't be parodic or satirical, in a formal and elevated style. And that's something that I want to emphasize as well, as well, is that this idea of the formal or the elevated style is particularly important to this. A formal or, or, and elevated style that focuses on a heroic or quasi-divine figure. So it's, it, it's a figure who is heroic or, in fact, might be partly divine. And we can see that with Achilles, that he is, in fact, the son of uh, Athetis, uh, one of the river nymphs. And so he actually does have divine blood within him. So we see this heroic or quasi-divine uh, hero. And this hero has the fate of a tribe, a nation, or humanity resting on his shoulders. So it's either a group of people, uh, an entire nation, or all of humanity uh, that this person comes to, uh, comes to save. And we can, I would even argue that the uh, popularity of uh, comic uh, DC and Marvel uh, movies right now is also rooted in this very same tradition that we see these superhuman deeds being being um, uh, performed for us on on the big screen and that popularity um, is is uh, I would argue once again rooted in this this uh, this epic tradition. So I'm just going to be talking about two different kinds of epics before I get into the features and uh, the conventions of the epic. So there are two. Uh, different kinds of epics that uh, uh, that exist in the ancient world, and the first is um, the the oral epic, okay, or the traditional epic, and that is Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey. But the second one is what is often called uh, the the literary epic, and the literary epic is a literary figure, a, an author that we understand as an author, um, who is imitating the style of that oral tradition. So it's not an oral tradition, it's a new story, it's a new narrative, but it's imitating that style of the epic tradition of, of Homer, for instance. And so we have Virgil, um, who, who is writing in, in Latin, uh, and he is telling the story of the founding of Rome, and Aeneas leaves Iliad um, after the fall of Troy. Uh, he leaves Ilium uh, and, and ends up founding Rome. It's one of the competing uh, narratives of the founding of Rome. Either it's the two twins um, suckled by a wolf uh, uh, at the uh, Tigris and Euphrates, or, uh, or it's uh, Aeneas coming from Iliad and bringing the old gods from the old world to Rome, and that's the founding of Rome. And so that's the story that, uh, that Virgil tells in the Aeneid, but he imitates and he mimics the tradition of the oral epic, okay? And so, and so that's... Um, uh, what we have here, the two different kinds. Now, 
Uh, again, M.H. Abrams uh, identifies um, five features of the, uh, of the epic poem. Uh, and the first is that it is a hero uh, of national or cosmic importance, okay? So this isn't just someone who's stopping crime. This isn't someone who's, who's just, uh, 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 just saving his family or something like this. This is cosmic uh, importance, okay? And so once again, that, 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 that we have uh, the gods involved. And that's one of the, the other features. That's the second feature is that the gods are themselves involved in the affairs of humans, okay? And so what we have, for instance, when Achilles is raging at the beginning of the Iliad and he's ready to kill Agamemnon, what happens is that uh, Athena, Paris, uh, 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 a palace Athena comes down and pulls him by the back of the hair to prevent him from killing Agamemnon. So she is actually, even in that first book, um, involved in the, in the battle. And so you have the gods as well um, with their petty differences and so on, also engaged in this, uh, this ongoing uh, a battle between uh, the humans. So that's the second one, is the involvement of the gods. Um, and uh, the setting is ample. So when we think of the Odyssey with this ample setting, that in fact was the known world at the time. That what we see is, is um, Odysseus, um, actually, uh, who has angered Poseidon, once again the gods becoming involved, um, who sends the winds and sends the seas to, to scatter uh, Odysseus to different distant shores and, and so on, so he's not able to actually to make it home to Ithaca. Uh, and so what we see then is, is uh, uh, the, effectively Odysseus traveling the known world of the Mediterranean uh, 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 that, that, uh, that, that existed at that time. So in many ways, it is figuratively once again mapping that world, right, that, that we see that the mapping of that world again. Superhuman deeds in battle is another one of the features of the epic, so that we have uh, Achilles, who is able to kill swaths of, uh, of the Trojans as they're coming out from behind the walls with, without a problem. And once again, uh, this could be considered to be the birth of the superhero, right? That we have the semi-divine, the quasi-divine hero Achilles uh, uh, killing numerous, uh, numerous characters. And we often have uh, the battle of the... the uh, what might be considered to be the hero and the anti-hero. So we have Hector and Achilles actually battling uh, outside the walls of Troy um, in, in some way that we might see the Spider-Man battling Dr. Octopus or something to, something to that effect, okay? Um, and finally, the other feature is that it is a ceremonial performance, okay? That this is a performance that particularly in the, the oral tradition, that these were poems that would have been recited. And we, we look at the length of the, the, the books of, of the Iliad and think, how would this possibly be recited? Um, but it was performed often at dinners as people were lounging and eating, and, and each performance would have been different. If someone was uh, falling asleep or what have you, they would speed up that particular scene, um, or if people were engaged in a particular battle, they would draw out the battle uh, and continue with the, this, the, this oral tale-telling. And we look at this and think, how was that possibly memorized? Okay? But that's the thing about Homer, and that's the thing about the epic, is that they weren't memorized they changed with each telling. And so what we see is that um, there are particular set scenes. So Achilles dons his armor, and it has very, very uh, similar lines to when Hector is donning his armor. So that there would have been particular ways in which uh, uh, the particular scenes would have been relatively easy for a poet to tell because they would have been kind of like um, a, a stock uh, narrative. Um, and as they're uh, uh, engaged in the stock narrative, the poet then would be thinking ahead and composing the lines of the next new scene that he was telling, okay? Um, and so, so uh, we often see 
um, tags, because you also have to remember that this is actually in meter. This is metered verse, okay? that this is actually metrical verse. But that makes it easier to memorize to some extent, because you get into a pattern, and, and you're able then to sort of fall into the pattern, and you end up with tags. So often you get um, the fleet-footed Achilles, for instance, as this tag, and that just fills in the, the, the metrical form that is required at that particular time as the poet is reciting. And so once again, that is the oral tradition, that is the traditional um, epic poem, not the, not the literary uh, uh, epic poem. So those are sort of the, the, the features of, of the, uh, the epic that I wanted to talk about um, before getting into the epic conventions. And when we start talking about the epic conventions, this is really where we see where contemporary fantasists are drawing from this, this epic tradition. And so once again, M.H. Uh, Abrams uh, identifies um, <coughs> uh, several um, conventions, four of them. Uh, one is the invocation of the muse. Sing God of the Peleus's, uh, the son of Peleus's rage, okay? Sing of the rage of Achilles. And, and it's an invocation of the muse that uh, the ancient Greeks did not actually believe that a poet was, was simply composing or was simply reciting a poem, but they actually believed that the poet was speaking on behalf of the muses, was speaking on behalf of the gods. And so this invocation, this inspiration, this literal uh, drawing of breath um, was an invocation of the muse to say, effectively, please let me sing this uh, tale properly. Okay, so let me, let me uh, tell this tale properly. So we have the invocation of the muse. Uh, we have a, a, a narrative that starts in media res. And media res is a Latin phrase that just means in the middle of things. Okay, so it starts in the middle of things. When we begin the Iliad, we're 10 years into a 10-year war. This is right before the fall of Troy. We don't even actually get the, the narrative of the, uh, of the Trojan uh, city falling. Ilium does not actually fall in the narrative poem, um, but it begins in the middle. Okay, so it begins in the middle of things, and we, we, uh, we see Achilles and Agamemnon arguing. Okay? And so it's starting right in the middle of things. You might want to think of this as the sort of opening of movies that starts with a really big action sequence, and then we get sort of the background uh, filled in afterwards. It's very much the same kind of thing that we're beginning in the middle of things, in media res, as it's called. Another feature uh, is catalogs, okay? that the poets are, are meticulously cataloging throughout their narratives. Uh, when I teach my fantasy literature course, um, I teach four books of the Iliad. I don't force them to read all of it. Um, and I joke with them and say, I was going to put the second book on, but I've decided not to put the second book of the Iliad on because the second book is only a catalog of the ships that are arriving from Greece to the mainland of Troy. And, and it's, only a, it's only a catalog, this, this, this probably 400, 500 lines of poetry devoted to naming ships naming families, but what this is, is the trace of that history. Here's a, fam here's a family ship that has come to, to help uh, Agamemnon. Here's another family ship that, it, that and, and so it's, it's actually um, uh, recording that history in an oral tradition, saying this family is associated with Agamemnon, this, this family is associated with Achilles, and so on. And so that's what that second book is. It's incredibly dull to read, um, I would imagine, unless you're, you're uh, an uh, ancient scholar, which I am not. Um, but it's incredibly dull to read because it is effectively the history of, of all of these people. And this used to be imagined to be a fiction, right? The Iliad is just a fiction, it's just the workings of a culture telling their, their, their superhero stories, right? That that's, that's often what it was considered to be. Until Heinrich Schliemann in 1870 
discovered Troy. They actually discovered Troy, and then people had to reimagine and say, hold on, this is a narrative that is actually based on, I'm not saying that there was a, a figure named Achilles who, who, who killed hundreds of men at a single, with a single uh, a throw of his spear, but um, what we see then is they had to reimagine this as uh, a recognition that there was an historical event or several historical events, they, they do think that, that perhaps it's several stories layered on top of each other, um, in, uh, in this place that actually did occur in, in Troy, in Ilium. So, uh, so again, we have this documentation of history happening in these epics. And they also have epic similes. Okay, so epic similes are these long, multi-lined similes. So instead of Robert Burns' uh, My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose, very simple simile, what we get is My Love is Like a Red, Red Rose in a garden that is filled with manure that's tended by a giant ogre um, who had a fight with his brother, and it's this long, long narrative within itself that is simply a, a, a simile. That's something I made up on the spot. That's not actually something that exists in the Iliad, just, just, so, you, just so you know. But, um, but you have these long epic similes um, that, that are, once again, another one of the conventions uh, of, of the epic. Um, <coughs> so, to talk then about the Iliad, I'll just, I'll just talk very briefly about uh, the Iliad. It is considered to be, or at least Homer is considered to be, the beginning of Western civilization, or at least the written component of, of Western civilization, Western literature in itself. Uh, and I am going to be, I, I do have to admit, the, that this is a very Western-centric talk. I simply do not have um, the background or the knowledge to be able to talk about Asian uh, epics or African epics and, and, and so on. But those do also exist. Um, but here in North America, certainly, um, we are drawing mostly from, from the Western tradition itself. But I did want to, to, to recognize that this is Western-centric in its, uh, that this talk is Western-centric in its approach. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you the story of the Iliad. This is a 24-book poem. I'm going to do it in two minutes, okay? So <laughs> I'm going to be leaving out a whole lot of stuff. And so I've actually got this written down, and we'll see if I can do this in two minutes. Okay, so it begins once again in media res with Achilles, uh, the great uh, quasi-divine uh, hero, fighting with Agamemnon, who is the leader of the Greeks, outside of the Trojan uh, uh, walls, okay? And uh, what they're arguing about, in fact, is that Agamemnon has had to give up his uh, prize, which is a woman, um, uh, in order to appease the gods. And so Agamemnon, in order to save face, says to Achilles, I need your woman. He needs Briseis to come to, to, to him. Uh, and so Achilles begins to pout. And he says, fine, if you're taking my woman, my booty, as it were, um, then, I will, uh, then I will no longer fight. I'm not going to fight. And he goes to his tent and he sulks and he pouts. And he says, that's it. I'm not fighting. What ends up happening at that time is that the Trojans begin to win. The Trojans begin to come out from behind the walls and, and, and begin defeating the Greeks. And so Patroclus, who is the best friend of Achilles, um, potentially his lover as well. This is a, an ongoing debate within, within scholarship, whether Patroclus was in fact a lover of Achilles, says, Achilles, please come out. And Achilles says, nope, I have to save face and I'm no longer fighting. So Patroclus says, let me don your armor. Let me put your armor on so the Trojans think that you are coming out. 
Okay, once again, that idea of the, the significance of the object, that, that the role the armor plays. So Patroclus puts on the armor, he goes out and he meets Hector, the hero of Troy. And Hector comes out and kills Patroclus and takes his armor. Okay, so now Hector has this great armor that, that used to be, uh, belong to Achilles. And so what ends up happening at this point is that Achilles flies into a rage. He's, he's just grief-stricken that his best friend slash lover Patroclus is dead on the battlefield. Uh, and so he goes to his mommy uh, and, and says, I need armor. And so what, what uh, Thetis does, uh, who is, who is uh, the, the uh, nymph, uh, uh, river nymph, goes to Hephaestus, the, the Greek god of uh, forge, the, the forge, the blacksmith, um, and says, please make armor for um, my, my son. And so there's an entire book, once again, devoted to the, the construction of the armor, which is about 100 lines, and then about four or 500 lines of a discussion of Achilles' shield. Okay, and so there's this creation of the shield, and, and on this shield um, is effectively the entire world represented on the shield. So we have this art within art. Right? So we have the, 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 the which is called ekphrasis, okay? So it's this art, uh, the, the shield um, within the art of the poem itself. So we have art within art, and that's going to be something we talk about is the significance and the role of art and poetry itself. So Achilles gets his armor and he says, that's it, I'm going to go out. But he recognizes in this, going out to the field, that he has decided, because for the, the entire poem, he's debating about whether he lives a long life in peace and dies without a name, or he dies in violence and gains immortality through the stories people will tell. In other words, the Iliad itself. And so he says, because Patroclus is dead, I'm going out onto the battlefield, I will die and live on forever in the Iliad that we're actually reading, effectively. Okay. Um, so he goes out, he does meet um, Hector on the battlefield, uh, and, and he does defeat Hector, he stabs Hector in the throat, with his, with his spear. Uh, Hector uh, lies on the battlefield. Despite having a spear wound in the throat, he has a long uh, final statement that, that, that he makes <laughs> about, uh, uh, please uh, don't defile my body. And then, uh, obviously, Achilles then drags his, his body around Troy, defiling the body, and he does that three times. And then he goes back, and effectively, that's the end of the Iliad, and I think that was longer than two minutes, but, but, but roughly two minutes, uh, the Iliad. And so uh, what we know then happens is that Achilles dies, right? The Achilles heel, that's what was not protected. He ends up dying with an arrow wound there, um, and Troy falls, okay? And, and, and from Troy falling, Aeneas leaves and founds Rome, okay? So that's, that's the narrative that, uh, that we have there. Things that are important to, to keep in mind, though, uh, about the Iliad then, um, are the, the, uh, the idea of the object, the significance of the object, the significance of the name, the significance of Achilles coming out to the battlefield when in fact it was, when it was uh, uh, Patroclus, right? And so these, these superhuman uh, uh, deeds that we have uh, uh, happening here. Um, poetry and song and that art of immortality, the art and immortality, the way in which they're related, we often see that again and again in contemporary fantasy as well. Uh, fate and free will. Right? Do, 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 in fact, there, there are suggestions that the gods themselves cannot change fate. Zeus wants the Trojans to win, um, but, but he recognizes that there is a fate that Troy will fall. Okay? So that we see this, uh, this ongoing uh, debate about free will, uh, free agency, and, and fate. And again, the power of names and language, as I have suggested. And so that's the ancient um, 
ancient Greek epic that I'm talking about here. We have something similar in English literature. We obviously don't ha necessarily have uh, the tradition, but something very similar uh, uh, developed in England. Uh, and this is Beowulf, okay? And, and the, the uh, uh, oldest extant or the oldest uh, existing um, epic poem in English. It's not really English, it's Anglo-Saxon, and if you've ever heard Anglo-Saxon, it sounds a little bit like Swedish. It kind of, kind of sounds like the, the Swedish chef on, on, on the Muppets. Um, so, so that's Anglo-Saxon. So it's not entirely uh, uh, English. It is, in fact, considered to be a different, uh, a different language. They had different uh, letters, such as Thorn and so on. But it is the uh, oldest um, extant epic poem in English. It was composed around the seventh, somewhere between the 7th and 10th century, and it is an anonymous poem, okay? So it's not, there isn't, a, there isn't a, uh, a named poet. It is an anonymous poem. It was written in England, okay? So it was written in England, but it's about events in Scandinavia, okay? So that's, the, that's what's happening in, in Beowulf, is that uh, the events are in Scandinavia, um, but it is written in England. Um, <coughs> it, it exists in one manuscript. We're incredibly fortunate, in fact, to have Beowulf because it exists in only one manuscript. In a codex, and a codex is basically uh, what we understand as a book, a bound uh, bunch of vellum. Uh, vellum uh, was sheepskin, uh, and that's the old paper, effectively, is that they would use, they would use uh, tanned uh, sheepskin. Uh, and there were no spaces, okay? There were no line breaks, there was nothing like that because vellum was so expensive, they just wrote sort of in a block and filled as much of the page as they possibly could on this, uh, on this skin, on, on, on vellum. And in fact, we have, uh, we have something <coughs> um, where we often see um, previous texts sort of under, underneath the, the text that we can read because what they would do is they would scrape the skin and reuse that actually as, as another, uh, uh, as another uh, uh, a text was written over top of another one, okay? A palimpsest, it's called, where you can sort of see the other one ghosting beneath, uh, beneath it. Um, so it existed in the uh, library of James Cotton, okay, an English, uh, an English um, peer. Um, and it was bound with other texts that were about monsters. And so that's effectively why they think that, that it was bound uh, uh, in this, is, is that it, uh, it all, they, all the stories had to do with monsters. Now in the 18th century, it was moved to a house called Ashburnhamdom, Ashburnhamdom House. And given that name, it probably should not surprise you that there was a fire in that house. Mm -hmm. Ash Ashburnhamdom had a fire, and Beowulf, the book, not the hero, Beowulf was, was thrown from the window and saved, though it was badly damaged. But we are very, very lucky, in fact, to have this, to have this text left. Now, when it was initially studied, it was really studied by Anglo-Saxon scholars as just an example of uh, the Anglo-Saxon language, and they would go through and they would say, ah, this translates to this, and they would very much focus on the linguistics of, of the language itself, until one scholar in England came along and said, no, no, we have to look at this as the root of English literature. That scholar, incidentally, J.R.R. Tolkien, and he wrote a, 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 an article called Beowulf and the Critics, okay, where he talked about, let's, let's actually talk about this as an example of English literature, early English literature, and he actually changed the scholarship on Beowulf from uh, the, the, the linguistics to the actual uh, literature itself. 
So Beowulf in two minutes. Uh, for those of you who may, know, who may be unfamiliar with Beowulf, Beowulf in two minutes. Um, what we have is we have a hero whose lineage is not entirely known. Uh, we're not entirely sure who his mother is. He's a foundling. Uh, his name is Beowulf. There are stories uh, of, of problems uh, over uh, with the Geats, uh, and so Beowulf says, "That's I'm going to go over and I'm going to save them. So he goes over, and what they find um, is that there is a monster uh, who is haunting the, the, the house where uh, uh, King Hrothgar is. So the, there, there's this monster, and the monster, incidentally, is, is just evil. And this is something that we see again and again throughout fantasy, contemporary fantasy literature as well. Good versus evil. Really very clearly defined examples of good versus evil. Same things happen, same things happen in superhero uh, uh, movies and, and so on. Good and evil are very clearly defined, that there is no sort of uh, gray area there. And so uh, <coughs> Grendel is the name uh, of this beast who is killing everyone. And so Grendel is really upset by the songs that are sung in, in the house, in the mead hall, it's called, uh, of, of Hrothgar. And so it's actually culture and it's, and it's humanity that is, that is in some ways angering uh, Grendel. So uh, Grendel uh, comes when, when uh, Beowulf is there. Beowulf rips off his arm and then they track, they tra track Grendel uh, and Grendel uh, dies. But Grendel has a mother. Okay, and so the mother um, lives at the bottom of a mirror, lives at the bottom of a, a, a lake. Uh, and uh, uh, Grendel's mother then, uh, Beowulf, goes to the, the lake. And once again, talking about uh, women okay, and, and lineage, uh, there are things called a strange lake birth. And, and they are believed to be uh, um, the daughter and son of Cain. Okay? So that we actually have the lineage of Grendel and Grendel's mother being traced back to the first murderer Cain in, in the Bible. And what we see is, in fact, early Christian, an, an early Christian author taking a pagan Scandinavian story and mapping Christianity onto it. Okay, so that there's sort of a retelling of this pagan tale, but through a Christian lens, which is, which is really quite fascinating, where we see these two cultures blending in Beowulf. So when they get to the lake, when they get to the mirror, there are these, these strange creatures that, that are aligned dead on the shore, and it's called literally a, a strange lake birth. Okay, so we have these, these, th this idea of, um, of lineage once again, that she's creating these, these strange creatures that are, that are dead on the side of the mirror. What happens is that uh, a figure, that um, a character uh, that uh, uh, Beowulf initially had difficulty with lends him his sword, and it's a named sword. Once again, that idea of naming objects. It's a named sword, and its name is Hrunting. So Beowulf takes Hrunting and dives for three days under the lake. Okay, three days he's under the lake. Um, but he's under the lake with, with this sword called Hrunting. Um, and he encounters Grendel's mother there. And he takes Hrunting. This is once again a child um, whose mother is not entirely uh, certain. Uh, takes Hrunting and tries to stab um, Grendel's mother with it. The sword melts. Okay, so we have a sword encountering the evil female that then melts. I don't think we necessarily need to be Freud to sort of get what might be actually sort of a, a happening in this, in this narrative. So what happens is he finds from ancient times a weapon of the giants, and he takes the giant sword and actually severs the head of uh, Grendel's mother. 
And so that's it, and then it says, and then he ruled in his kingdom for 50 years. One line in, in this long poem, <laughs> 50 years go by, and it's, it's, it's like in the movies, and later that day, right? Just, just so 50 years later, uh, after this, this kind rule, what ends up happening is that a thief sneaks into the barrel, uh, sneaks into the, the lair of a dragon, and he steals a cup. He takes the cup, and the dragon wakens and starts, starts uh, burning everyone and so on until Beowulf says, I'm going to go out and I'm going to once again save my, my people. So you have to imagine that he'd be around 70 at this point if he's ruled for 50 years well. And, and I tell my students that you can imagine perhaps that Beowulf has gone out with his walker to, 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 fight, to fight the dragon because, because it's been 50 years that he's been ruling quite well. Um, so the dragon comes down. He's, he injures the dragon, but it's, it's his uh, friend Wiglaf who actually ends up killing the dragon. Okay? Um, and, and Beowulf says, oh, I would very much like to look at this treasure. Um, and, and he looks at the treasure of the dragon that is then there for the people. But then everyone recognizes that that's the end of the Geats. That's the end of Beowulf. That's the end of his family because he had no heir. Okay? Once again, that melting sword, he had no heir, which is really where women in, in the ancient epics and in Beowulf gain their power is through the maternal body, that they're able in many ways to gain their power only through um, passing on male heirs, and, and, and that's, uh, that's uh, why they were valued, why they were considered treasure, and so on. Because really, women are treated terribly in these epics, um, that they are very much objects, that they are very much uh, uh, seen as treasure, and, and certainly not, uh, not necessarily um, heroic. And so uh, that, that, that's Beowulf. Those are the roots of fantasy literature. And I did mention J.R.R. Tolkien and Beowulf and the critics because I want to use that as sort of a segue into contemporary fantasy. And although fantasy existed and we can look at fairy tales as fantasy and so on, prior to Tolkien, really I would argue that our conception of fantasy literature, of high fantasy, really begins with J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, and The Hobbit uh, initially began as um, a narrative that he would tell his son Christopher Tolkien before going to bed. Okay, so once again, that oral tradition, the, 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 the tales um, that he's telling his son end up becoming this, this world that he creates. And he's got um, elvish languages. I say that my great fear when I start my first day of fantasy in the summer course that I walk in and people, students are sitting together talking in elvish, right? Like I'm, I'm just, I'm terrified that, that, that people are going to know so much about, about Tolkien that, that they are actually speaking in elvish because um, uh, he does have languages. He has an entire religious system created. He's got this entire world, this entire mythos um, that's created. And, but what we have with The Hobbit is very much a kid's narrative. Okay, it's very much a child story, and if you are familiar with the trilogy, with the, the Lord of the Rings, even Gandalf, the character of Gandalf, who is very powerful, almost a godlike figure in the Lord of the Rings, is really kind of petty and a very different character in The Hobbit. He, he's almost very much like a child himself, um, at least in, the, at least in the, uh, the, the printed version, not the movie. So he's very, very different. Uh, wh where we see him uh, you know, uh, fighting the Balrog in Lord of the Rings, He's lighting pine cones on fire and throwing them at wolves in, in The Hobbit. So it's a very different kind of power that we see here with, uh, with, with Gandalf. But um, what the story of, of The Hobbit is, if you're unfamiliar, is that there's a, a hobbit or a halfling, um, so, so a person that's, that's half the size, and my 11-year-old um, son calls me The Hobbit, So I'm because uh, he's about this tall, uh, so I'm very 
happy with that. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, so, so uh, we have a hobbit then who is taken along with 13 dwarves to go back to uh, the lonely mountain where Smog uh, the dragon is living. And inc uh, incidentally, I did look up the word Smog, um, and uh, etymologically it exists before the publication of The Hobbit because we can really read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings in some ways as a lament for the loss of the, the rural tradition, right? It's the industrialization. And one of the things that really sent uh, Tolkien fans um, into, into a tizzy with the, the development of the, 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 mo the movies, the films, was that they left out the final chapter of the trilogy, which is called The Scouring of the Shire, where we actually see fa effectively factories that are being built uh, in there, and, and, it's, and it's not the kind of happy ending that we see in, in the film version. And so people got really upset, saying, we're missing sort of the commentary uh, of, of industrialization, which is, which is one of the things that we can see here. And you see that very, very clearly, I would argue, in the films, right, where we have the orcs working the, the, the forges and working the, the, what could be considered to be kind of factory work, uh, uh, constructing the uh, urukai, the, the, the big nasty ogres, uh, or orcs, effectively. Um, from the goblins. So the corruption of elves is what they are. Um, <clears throat> so uh, what happens is that he goes along on this, on this uh, trek uh, and they encounter two, uh, two uh, trolls. Uh, they fight the trolls and then there they find um, treasure. Okay, they find elven swords. And so um, uh, Gandalf uh, get, uh, takes a sword. Uh, the, the sword is given to Elrond. And uh, Bilbo, who is the hobbit, uh, of the, the, the titular hobbit, uh, ends up with a sword as well, a little short sword that would have been considered a knife and so on. Uh, they go into Mirkwood Forest. Uh, they have to travel through there to get to the Lonely Mountain, so dark, nasty forest. Once again, we see this mapping of uh, the uh, Middle Earth, effectively, at this time as they're going through uh, Mirkwood Forest. A bunch of spiders come down, and Bilbo uh, stabs and kills a spider. And, and he says, at this point, that you deserve a name, he says to his sword. You deserve a name. Uh, and so he actually names the sword Sting. And once again, there's that power of naming. The saying, here's, here's Sting. Um, and, and he feels uh, much more like an adventurer, feels like a hero. And if anyone, once again, plays those uh, video games, those role-playing games, this is effectively Bilbo leveling up, right? Like he's, he's killed the spider, and, and he levels up at this point. Um, and, and so uh, he goes on, and they get to, uh, they get to the Lonely Mountain. Um, Smog, uh, Bilbo sneaks in and takes a cup. He steals a cup from Smog. Remind you of anything? Beowulf. So, so uh, absolutely, Tolkien took parts of Beowulf in the writing of The Hobbit. And what he said he wanted to do with The Hobbit was provide England with the same kind of mythology um, that, that existed uh, beforehand. So he wanted to create this, this, kind of, uh, this kind of fantastical past. So Bilbo takes the, uh, the, the, the ring, um, and Smog comes, uh, comes awake, and Bard, who is a man from Lake Town, ends up slaying the dragon with a, with a magical arrow, effectively, uh, and Smog the dragon dies, and uh, then um, the dwarves take over the Lonely Mountain after the Battle of Five Armies, and I didn't even mention the One Ring, okay? But, <laughs> which is really sort of the reason the Hobbit exists. But, uh, but effectively, uh, uh, what we see here is a kind of retelling of Beowulf uh, in, in, in The Hobbit, or sort of a reimagining of Beowulf. And this happened again with Michael Crichton. And Michael Crichton um, is uh, probably best known as the writer of Jurassic Park, okay? Um, but he also wrote another novel called The Eaters of the Dead. 
And allegedly what happened was that he had a dinner party and someone said, I don't like Beowulf because Beowulf is just filled with all of this magic and so on. And he's challenged Crichton to write a realistic narrative of Beowulf. How would Beowulf actually be grounded in reality? And so what Michael Crichton did was in fact remove all of the magic from Beowulf, all of the fantastical elements of Beowulf, and told a story where Grendel was in fact represented by a group of people who were effectively Neanderthals the coexistence of humans and, and Neanderthals. So the Venn uh, end up becoming the Grendel uh, in, in, in it, uh, in, the, uh, uh, in, the, in the narrative here. Um, and then <coughs> Grendel's mother ends up becoming the female figure um, who is the, sort of the religious center of the Venn. Um, and, and so it's a retelling of it that way. And the dragon that, that appears in Beowulf is actually cavalry with torches. It's the fireworm, as they call it, that comes down from the hills. Um, and that's actually remade into a film that I teach in my fantasy course called The Thirteenth Warrior, starring Antonio Banderas. It's a fantastic B-movie. It's not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a really fun movie if you want to sit down and, watch, and spend an hour and a half watching Antonio Banderas um, slay uh, 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 Neanderthals. It's fun. Um, <clears throat> so, so we have here then uh, uh, Beowulf being rewritten in The Hobbit and the birth, in many ways, of contemporary fantasy. Okay? Um, <coughs> there are no female characters in The Hobbit. Not one. Not one female character in The Hobbit. There is mention of one female character, and that is Bilbo's mother, okay, um, who comes from the Took side. That's the Took side. And the Took side is the side that lets Bilbo go off adventuring. They're more adventuresome and so on. So in some ways, they're problematic. Right? So, so we get this, this, this kind of problematizing of, of uh, uh, women. And, and, and Tolkien said that he wanted to have no female characters because he didn't want sexual tension in what was a kid's book. Not sure that that necessarily entirely uh, uh, justifies not having any female characters, um, but that was his reasoning behind it. So what ends up happening is that with the absence of women that, that, uh, or female characters, that what ends up happening is that the, the races within The Hobbit become gendered. So we have the uber-masculine orcs, right? And we have the, the more feminine hobbits and elves. And so you can actually sort of map onto uh, the races a kind of gender continuity, um, but, but going from, say, the hobbits to, to the orcs as the, as the most masculine. So even in the absence of, uh, uh, of women, that nevertheless, gender does play a role, uh, even, even as uh, Tolkien allegedly attempted to remove gender as a factor in the text. I'm going to talk about two more texts of contemporary fantasy. Uh, one might be argued whether it is in fact fantasy or not, and that is Ursula K. Le Guin, uh, famous for uh, The Left Hand of Darkness, um, as well as The Wizard of Earthsea uh, uh, narratives. Um, but Hearst, uh, not very well known, a collection of short stories called Changing Planes. Um, and it is a wonderful tale. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's uh, mother uh, was um, an anthropologist uh, at Berkeley. And so what we see here is that uh, it came to Ursula K. Le Guin apparently that this discomfort in airports where you're eating greasy food and you've got horrible seating and so on allows you to, and she came up with this, this, this pun, change planes. Okay, so changing planes. So what ends up happening is that you're not just changing planes, you're actually changing planes, as in worlds, and so you travel to different worlds by eating greasy food and sitting in uncomfortable positions, and then you're able to change a plane to, to something else. But what these end up being are very, very specific commentaries 
on what's going on in society. And I'll take three stories um, as an example and just very briefly tell you about them. One is called Porajan Ilek. And in Porajan Ilek, it's a, it's, a, it's a plane that is uh, populated mostly by hyper-intelligent scientists. And they just willy-nilly just experiment. And they experiment with genomes and they experiment with with, uh, uh, with uh, living cells and so on, and they create numerous different kinds of, uh, of, of beings, effectively, that have different genomes imparted in them. And so one of the characters, one of the central characters, Ailai uh, Li, I believe her name was, um, is 80% corn. That's, that's, she's 80% corn, and this, is, and this is what it is. But what we see in the commentary is that only people who are 99.99% pure uh, human are able to hold positions of power, who are able to be in government, and so on. Okay, and if anyone recognizes 99.9% pure, that's actually from a Dove commercial, right? So, so, so it's also a, a play on that as as well. So that's uh, the island of uh, Ilek, where she's really su suggesting, you know, uh, why are we, why would we allow just sort of the experimentation without limitation? on scientific advancements. And so that's one of the, the, the commentaries um, that she's making uh, with, with uh, changing planes. Um, the Island of Great Joy is another one. And what happens on the Island of Great Joy is that it's effectively a commentary on both colonization um, as well as uh, a, a sort of celebratory culture that we have um, in, in, in the world today. And the Island of Great Joy, uh, what we have is, is effectively it's Christmas all the time. Okay, it's all, it's Christmas 24 hours a day, 357 days a, uh, a, a year that we have um, uh, Christmas. And so uh, what ends up happening is that the original inhabitants become the elves and, and they become the workers and, they, and, and so it's very much a, a commentary on consumerism and, and the way in which, which uh, holidays, uh, holy days are corrupted into, into something that is very much uh, commercialized. And, and finally, the last story that I wanted to talk about with, with uh, Ursula K. Le Guin is the Flyers of Guy. G-Y is, is the name of it, Flyers of Guy. And what it is is that there is a, a group of people who are very much like humans, um, except that one out of 10 people um, end up sprouting wings. Okay? And these people who sprout wings uh, are treated despicably. They're thrown from cliffs, um, but they're considered to be very artistic. They're, they're poets. Um, and and it's, it's looked down upon if they have children because you have the, the, these people flying with holding, holding a baby and so on. And so it took me about three readings of this book, or, or pardon me, of that particular story as I was going through it. I was trying to figure out what is it that she's commenting on? And then I got one in ten. And then the, the idea of, uh, they're, they're called flighty as well, the people with wings. They're called flighty. Uh, and so I started, it took me three times and I'm like, this is a commentary on the treatment of LGBTQ people in our society. It took me, I'm embarrassed to say, it took me three times of reading it to, to, to realize that this is what it was. Is that, it, and, and it's, it's, this is what I mean when I say that they're able to comment obliquely on, on uh, a social issues that would be considered to be sensitive or controversial, that what we see is, is in fact making a very clear condemnatory statement saying, look at what we have done. Right? Look at what we have done to these people. And once you realize it, once I teach students and they go, oh, because it's G-Y, right? And I leave a little space on the board when I'm writing it up and I write an A between it. And it's like, oh, <laughs> right? That, that you suddenly realize that, that this is what she's commenting on. Um, and so once again, I wanted to bring up 
uh, Ursula K. Le Guin because of that social commentary, that that's very clearly what, what it is that she's doing. And we can see that she's doing it very consciously, but I would argue that we can see that even in narratives that are not necessarily uh, a clearly commentating on, uh, on contemporary society, that nevertheless it still exists. Uh, finally, this is going to be the last thing I talk about before I open it up to any questions that, that you may have, is Guy Gabriel Kay's Tigana. Uh, Guy Kay is a Canadian fantasist. Uh, he was a lawyer. He wrote for Street Legal, uh, the, the TV show. Uh, he actually worked on the Silmarillion with Christopher Tolkien as well. So he comes from a pedigree of that high fantasy literature that he, was, uh, he helped Christopher Tolkien put the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion, incidentally, is sort of pre-Lord of the Rings J.R. Tolkien, for those of you who don't know, but created the, the or helped uh, edit the Silmarillion with, Jer with uh, Christopher Tolkien, uh, John's son, um, and uh, then began writing, and he began with uh, the Fiona of Our Tapestry, okay, that uh, he, he effectively throughout all of his writing has this, you might think of it as an Ur world called Fionavar, um, that's sort of the primary world, the primary plane, um, and all of these other worlds that he has are in, uh, always have some kind of reference to Finnevar or Finbar or, or what are called grace notes to Fionavar, this, this prime world. Um, and that story begins um, on campus at the University of Toronto, because as everyone knows, that's the center of the universe, right? So, 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 so it starts at the University of Toronto and then it moves into this other plane, uh, Fionavar. But Tigana takes place in another one of these subset worlds um, and all of Guy Kay's texts, all of his novels, in some way reference Earth history. And so the Palm, which is the name of uh, the, uh, the island uh, that, that uh, uh, the, the, the events occur in, the Palm is in fact based on the period of the Italian city-states, okay, so the warring Italian city-states. And it's, so instead of a boot of Italy, you have the palm, okay, of, T of Tigana. And so it's this, this palm looks kind of like, like this, okay? Um, and there are uh, five different provinces within the palm, and they're all at war. And what happens is that one tyrant comes from the east to take over uh, uh, some of them, and one tyrant comes from uh, the west to take over. And so what we end up seeing is um, uh, the, the w competing the power of two external uh, sorcerers coming in and uh, uh, taking over and colonizing this land. Alberico from the east uh, is uh, pure evil. That's, he's, just, he's just purely evil. Brandon uh, from the west is, is, has, has got some redeeming features, one of which is um, that he lets his son take over the province of Tigana. So he leads the armies, and this is before the novel even begins. He leads the armies to, to uh, crush the Tiganese rebellion in Tigana. And uh, Stephen is his name, and he is killed in the battle. And so Brandon is so upset by this that what he does is he decides he's going to crush Tigana. He takes away the art. In other words, once again, that immortality uh, that we talked about before. He, he destroys the statues. He destroys the, the towers uh, of, of, the, of the capital city. And he takes away the name. Okay? So that what he does is he actually erases the name Tigana so that people say Tigana uh, Tiganese are still able to say Tigana, but no one can hear it. Okay, so that he's actually erased language. He's erased the name of a group of people. And so it's no longer Tigana, but Lower Corte. Okay, so he's, he, he's provided, and it's quite significantly Lower 
Cortez. That, that, and, and so what we end up with then is uh, an attempt of a group of Tiganese to come back and uh, reclaim Tigana, the name, the province, and, and, and the power, and so on. And I, once again, strongly encourage you to read this. It's a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, just in general. Uh, and so what ends up happening is, uh, just to sort of talk about geography to wrap up this, th this talk on mapping, so we have the map of the, of the palm that we see. What ends up happening, though, is that for sorcerers in Tigana to gain power, what they have to do is they have to take the right hand and sever one of the fingers to make it look like the palm. So the power of the, the, the magic system within Tigana is actually rooted specifically in the land itself, in the geography itself. And they discover, uh, they later discover, these, these uh, rebels later discover an ancient form of magic that literally comes from the land. Okay, it's, it's, it's sort of an ancient pagan kind of magic that exists. And they use both forms of magic to have the two uh, tyrant sorcerers fight each other and then they reclaim uh, Tigana and, and all is well, as it were. I'm not going to ruin the, the, the end end of it because I do encourage you to, to read it. Um, but that is, that is the, the story of Tigana. And so just to sort of summarize what we talked about, that, that we think of uh, fantasy literature as just escapist, as just imaginative stuff, as uh, uh, people creating worlds and just, just doing these, these things, not really in any way contributing to the world. And I would like to argue, in fact, the exact opposite, that in creating worlds, these fantasists are, in fact, uh, attempting to make this world a better place. And they are rooted in the epic tradition, and they are commenting on our world. And without the thinking of Star Trek, without the thinking of speculative fiction, without the commentary of fantasists, we would not necessarily have the world that we have today. Thank you. Oh, sorry, that was quite long. I apologize for that. <laughs> um, with, with your, your comment about uh, removing a whole culture, yes. one, mm -hmm. uh, is that also perhaps uh, look closely at the whole aspect of Western uh, European colonization efforts? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think that that's a really good point, that absolutely it's commenting on colonization. I that it's an explicit sort of uh, statement of uh, indigeneity in Canada, for instance. Um, but absolutely, that, that colonizing power that we see coming into to the palm absolutely is a comment on, uh, on colonization uh, and colonial, uh, the, the colonial project in general. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, and one of the questions I asked my students about Tigana is, could this only be written by a Canadian? Right? Because in Canadian literature, this is what we talk about, is the role of the land, the role of the landscape in Canadian literature. And the, the landscape plays such an important part of Tigana. Is that a fantasy that is, that is really highly inflected by, by Canada itself, by the nation from which the, uh, the, the writer comes? Uh, so, yeah. Yes? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Uh, and and, and talking talk about world building, um, yeah, so Tolkien uh, wrote his, his work and, and again, it became sort of a, a shibboleth. It became kind of a password, right, that, that people would say orcs and elves and so on. You know, oh, you've read Tolkien, right? And, and you see Led Zeppelin writing songs about Gollum, the evil one who came and slipped away with her, right? So this influence of, and people in the 1960s wore buttons that said Gandalf for president, right? Would be of great improvement now, I think. Um, but, <laughs> but, but uh, um, yeah. So, so we have that. That, and, and again, that 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 world building of the Iliad leads into uh, potentially Beowulf. I'm not suggesting that the poet of Beowulf read the Iliad or anything like that. But certainly, we have this 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 uh, in some ways a kind of shorthand, right? That you look back and say, okay. Here's, here's something from the epic tradition, I'm able to say this and we all understand it because it's a part of our culture. Um, and so this idea then of, of world building within world building within world building, that we get these uh, often the, those uh, uh, references, those oblique references to other literary works as well. Um, and when um, uh, Gary Gygax uh, was creating Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the Tolkien estate actually came after him because he had, uh, he had uh, hobbits initially. Um, and so he had to change them into halflings and, and actually uh, so we get so D and D is very clearly derived from from Tolkien as well, right? But elves and orcs existed um, in literature outside of uh, outside of Tolkien, so um, he didn't necessarily need to, to change those those words. That's why they exist in in D and don't know if that answered your question, but it allowed me to ramble a little bit. So thanks. <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. Wow. I'm going to have to take a look at that. Thank you. I don't think they do. That's that's a, that's a good question. I don't think they do, and I know um, God Gabriel Kay's works have been translated into numerous languages, um, but but again, I wouldn't be able to name one of the translators, for yeah. instance, right? So, yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. Yes. Tigana. Yes. Okay. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your presence today. Thank you.